People, three quick things you can do to support me and support the Value Economics Podcast. Number one, subscribe to the Value Economics Podcast. Number two, leave a five-star rating if we deserve it. Number three, if we deserve it further, leave a review. Something nice, something mean, whatever you value. I don't care. Let's get into the show. Everybody's got to Value Economics Podcast. Six million ways to die. Choose one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Value Economics Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And I can't, especially today. I actually cannot dig it because I am very sad that we are ending the quote-unquote success series today, but I am so on the flip side of that because I am unbelievably excited about what I have for you guys today. I have been thinking about this topic for like almost obsessively for a very, very long time and and probably like months on end of just like how can I phrase this? How could I bottle this? How could I package this? So it can be something that's accessible, something that's relatable, but also something that's really, really impactful and powerful for a majority of people. And I think, at least I hope that I've done that. And I think I've done that because I believe there is a truism among what we've discussed in the past couple of weeks surrounding success culture. I have a feeling an intuition about mankind and about humans that we all know when we're bullshitting one another. I feel like I feel like we all know that. And I feel like we all know when something is like there's all that no matter where people discuss morality or how they discuss morality rather or where it comes from or anything of the sort, we all know that it's there. And we all know when something is kind of bullshit and kind of not like actually real and helping people. And I think that this is a lot of what this is. What a lot of success culture is is just kind of a kayfabe mock interview type bullshit that is just it's just not real like it's not real and i think that this is going to be probably one of the most critical things that i have tried to work on for a long time i'm actually going to be pivoting a lot of my other content to this new content that i'm making now that you guys will see later on in the year that i am working on putting out on other platforms uh, we're going to like we're doing a lot of content already but it's going to get a lot bigger, I would say, throughout the other mediums that I'm going to spread it at and see where it goes. But I wanted it to end on this particular topic just because I feel like this is what we need to do in order to defeat this Leviathan that we've been talking about this last couple of weeks. These success culture fear mongering type people who want to just abuse and exploit other people for money or for views or clicks or whatever. And I think that there is really kind of a countercultural moment that we're living in, in terms of this dynamic in our, our culture, our society and everything in between. So that being said, I am, like I said, unbelievably excited to kind of come forward with this topic and bring it to the world and hopefully create a really interesting dialogue and conversation with a very polarizing topic. So I've talked too much nonsensically or maybe sensically, I hope sensically, but let's get into it. Here we go. So another year, another conclusion of another series. It's been a ride. We took off and had a nice flight. Now it's time to land the plane. When we started our series on success in America, we began with discussing a phenomenon known as the success masturbation hypothesis, which has infected the brains of nearly every young and impressionable American by giving them a unified version of success that is, in most cases, completely out of touch with most people's values and the lifestyles that are influenced by them. This predatory practice by our success mongers has led to most of this demographic chasing the wrong things for the wrong reasons, which has reaped far more failure and sadness than it has success and happiness. Two weeks ago, we discussed the fallout from the SMH, which is this demographic's drug of choice, success addiction. Success addiction, the success masturbation hypothesis taken to excess, is what begins to occur when success culture begins to, like any drug, completely consume your life until you have nothing left but withdrawal from that thing to keep you going forward. It is a complete and total alienation of value, something that has become so distorted from what most actually want when looked at objectively from afar, it's almost unrecognizable. In other words, with the first two weeks of this series, we're nothing short of depressing, grim, and hopeless. We felt this way when reading and listening to them because we know just how true this is, as I mentioned earlier. Most likely, the image that pops into your head when ingesting both of these concepts is a specific person who has been captured ideologically by this mentality. That enslaved person, to you, is too far gone, pulled away from who they actually are and left to fend for themselves. And if you're really unlucky, that person that you're thinking of and conceptualizing is you, and you feel like there's no way out. 
But this is where the tide can begin to turn. Because contrary to that opinion, there is hope for these people. There is something that they can do. There is a beacon that they can be pointed to to redeem most people from the maw of success culture. While to reiterate, I'm not saying that no one should pursue being outrageously successful like our success mongers because this is a good thing of done with value backing it as are all things. What I am saying is that success is the highest is in the highest place for a reason. There's only so much room at the top. So the proper question to ask on how to defeat the bad things that come from success culture would be something like this. Where does everyone else in that equation fall? For the best answer to that question that I've heard in some time, we could turn to one of the few people that has cracked the code on success culture, Tim Dillon, who ironically I saw on stage last night in San Antonio, and he was terrific. It's what was probably the best comedy show I've ever seen in my life, and that's saying something. I've seen a lot of them, but he was great. I loved him. You guys all know I loved him. But Dillon, even though his job is to make people laugh, something he's quite good at, as I mentioned earlier, and especially last night, is also something that transcends laughter. A man with a keen insight into the condition of the common man. In large part due to his upbringing in Long Island, the various odd jobs he worked on his way to the top of the comedic heap, and a general intelligence about the American way, Dylan has been able to cut through to a demographic of people through his material like perhaps no other comic I've ever seen. And this was best epitomized in his October 14th release of his podcast entitled Degree of Difficulty. Since the mainstream news has done its best to pretend that it's not happening anymore, a good anchoring for the context would be that October 14th was exactly one week after the horrific Hamas attack on the Israeli populace. At the time, we knew a lot, lot less than we do now. All we knew was that the Middle East was in chaos, people were going insane, and madness and sadness reigned supreme on all levels. However, in a world that could only talk about the problems in that troubled region, it was Dylan that came forward with a comedic solution. Dylan's solution to the problems that plagued the Gaza Strip was simple. Make it like America. Have corporations swoop in and turn it into a mall, sell butter-infused soft pretzels and sugar water that calls itself lemonade, give people employment opportunities as a cashier at a Barnes & Noble with moderate benefits, sell advertisements on top of the Iron Dome. It was a hilarious win-win for everybody. And it was here that Dylan saw an opportunity to describe, truly, what he's called the, quote, best you can do while living in America. The best you can do in America, according to Dylan, was something like this. You work in an outlet mall Lowe's with a long commute, are divorced, have a girlfriend that you won't change or commit to your lifestyle, have children that don't hate you, and go out with your co-workers to a yard house once every few months. This, Dylan stated, is the best that most people can do given what America has to offer. When this clip started to go viral on the internet, people generally had one of two reactions to it. The first reaction came from the group of people that thought Dylan was being cruel, that he was punching down at people who were, quote, beneath him. The second reaction came from the group of people that thought Dylan was outrageously funny, that these people should be behaved cruel towards, that they should be punched down upon. Hilariously enough, it was both sides of success culture doing what they do, demonize the other without having any empathy for the people actually in the situation that Dylan described, or the people in the Middle East, which is a whole separate matter. But the best you can do rant was neither of these things. The best you can do rant was meant to be a hilarious retribution to the craziness going on in the Middle East, yes. However, it was also meant to shine a light on something else, Something that most Americans described in either of the aforementioned demographics are, whether they will admit to or not, far more uncomfortable with. The reality of the average existence in America. Many people thought that Dylan's description of American life was one of hopelessness and nihilism. However, the craziest thing about Dylan's rant was that all of it was true. This is the life of the average American, albeit a generalized one. If you look at the raw data, this proves itself rather easily. The average American is divorced, makes around $50,000 a year, commutes a good amount of time to work, has a couple of children, and only a couple of close friends. What's troubling is not what Dylan described as the average American life. What should be far more troubling is that Dylan's description of the average American life was not looked at with objectivity, but with a bizarre mixture of either horror or lampooning. When polarizing by Dylan's wording of, of this existence, people either went one of two ways. The route of making fun of the archetype of Dylan's description, or the route of being horrified of Dylan's description. When talking about success, it has almost become a point of retribution against, quote, non-successful people. It has become the norm, not the exception, that the people who don't have outward outrageous success become demonized by people that both do and don't have that same outward outrageous success. In doing so, we have successfully alienated the biggest group of people in our society demographically. You don't hear this talked much about in the media, who completely ignore what is the easily the biggest driver of polarization, resentment, and strife in our culture. 
class. Class, far more than gender, race, and sexuality, is responsible for almost all of the modern issues that plague our country. You can tell far more about someone's character and who they are by whether they're rich, middle class, or poor than whether they're a man, white, or a lesbian. The first set of qualifiers are indicators of lifestyle and values. The second qualifiers are indicators of biology and fact. The first set is optional, can be chosen, and is flexible about its embodiment. The second set is not optional, cannot be chosen, and is inflexible about its embodiment. And given this, there is no group of people that has been more discriminated against and demonized than the average American, the people in the middle of the spectrum, the forgotten man and woman. The rich and the poor in our country get a lot of attention, and this is in some ways warranted. But what has been lost on nearly everyone is that the vast majority in our culture are not rich or poor. They're just as Dylan described. Average, just trying to get by and more than likely feeling like an apostate in their own society, in their own country. We are beginning to see this more and more, not just America, but across the world. Whether it's Javier Malay in Argentina, Victor Orban in Hungary, Georgia Maloney in Italy, or Donald Trump in America, populism is ballooning around the world. This is a direct result of the common man and woman across the spectrum getting fed up with being tread upon by the tyranny of the minority in our class system. People are done with elites and their subjective pandering to, quote, the oppressed, whoever that may be in a given society in any given moment. They are putting their foot down, saying enough, and demanding more as they should from the people they elect into power. The saddest thing about the demonization of average people in society is that we have gone so far to ignore them that we have almost grown to nearly dehumanize them. Any talk of, quote, average in anything is almost guaranteed to get a reaction out of somebody. No one likes talking about these people because no one likes to think that they are those people. We have done our absolute best to ignore all the good and wonderful things about average people in our society and an average existence in our society that we have gone the path of forgetting that they're actually people. If you can't see this as something that's unbelievably troubling, as we would with any other grouping of people, I frankly don't know what will convince you otherwise, except for maybe this podcast, so I'd keep listening if I were you. In the eyes of most people that are pursuing what we have declared, quote, the good life, there are only two directions in life in which you can go. The first path is hyper-success, defined by the success masturbation hypothesis and success addiction. The second path is complete and objective failure, defined by a life of loserdom and misery. Like so many things in our society that are ever defined by excess, we have completely obliterated any middle ground for the behavior and comfort of extremes. Interestingly enough, however, one side of the way people view these outcomes has become much larger than others. The, quote, successful path, as defined by the SMH and success addiction, has become poised so poisonous that we have begun to unconsciously lump all averageness in with the side of failure. It's either hyper-success or you're a loser. It's all or nothing. Be this or you aren't worthy of time. It's hard to overstate how so incredibly destructive this line of thinking is, as it is with any type of conversation and any topic of conversation. The reason why is because for most of us, including me and you, by the way, you will end up somewhere in the middle of the two extremes. There are very few totally alt-right extremists and very few totally Marxist ideologues, as it turns out. No one is a comic book character type embodiment of any extreme, no matter how much we want to rationalize and simplify it in our own heads that they or we are. This makes no sense when you look at things objectively and rationally. Most average and common people in society are doing well in multiple aspects. They most likely spend a good amount of time with their families. They coach youth sports. They make less money, but are probably more fulfilled in their career paths. However, when looking through the cultural lens that we have hastily and lazily propped up for ourselves, these people, particularly in the younger demographics, will only see themselves as a failure. The problem with success in our culture that is looked at culturally through a singular narrative, because of the success masturbation hypothesis, we have painted the story of success with such a broad brush that we have completely lost all nuance that comes along with it. This narrative, the one that eventually leads to success addiction, has poisoned the water at the well, making people drunk off of one bad idea that is causing people to become more miserable than ever before. Instead, what the narrative surrounding success should be is a wide-ranging appeal of things that actually make people happy. While the framework for success must certainly exist, there are some definitional things that must be accounted for and adjusted accordingly. A certain amount of flexibility must be involved due to people possessing different values and outcomes that they want for themselves and for their lives. It's here that we run into another problem. Along with the average people in our culture being demonized, the things that have defined average people have become so as well. Things like being a mother, a flag football coach, and a firefighter used to be looked at with high regard and social status. Now they're looked at as a characteristic of serfdom. 
Well, when these elements of average, the things that are so-called, quote, average people possess, become demonized and ridiculed, the path to actual fulfillment for the vast majority of the population gets cut out at the knees. The path for success to most is not going after hyper-success, but rather at reviving the dignity and choices of the average. The way to defeat the success masturbation hypothesis and success addiction is not by going after less. Rather, it's by wanting more of the things that you actually value, not the things that people from on high, those who don't know you nor give a shit about you, tell you that you should value. This readjustment, if done right, will lead to a far more fulfillment and happiness than the current narrative of success allows. To chart a common path towards this redefinition, we first need to look at the immense value of the average and common people in society to see why this lifestyle, contrary to the modern narrative, is valuable. Next, we must fully see what happens when the average gets removed from our society. And finally, we will end our series with an argument for why people should chase average far more than they do, including and especially people who work at a Lowe's in the Gaza Strip, should that ever happen, and let's pray to God that it both does and does not. Throughout my last four years and change in doing this, I've had a lot of very interesting conversations and topics with a lot of people. I've touched nearly every topic under the sun. I've talked to so many people who are as similar and different to me as one could ho possibly hope to do. There's been a degree of overstimulation that is, at times, so intense that it borders on unbelievable. The effect of this effort has been, in my estimation, singular in one sense, desensitizing. This is, on one hand, a good thing. I'm not surprised by much anymore, for example. I'm able to look at events, people, and things with a lot more objectivity and sincerity than I did before without garnering overwhelming emotion around them. This has made my analysis and decision-making much sharper, and it's something that I'm constantly grateful for as I look to tackle more intense and tougher problems. However, it also has an equal and opposite reaction to what I described in the sense that I tend to miss more common trends than I would like to, or than I have been more easily attuned to in my prior mindset. I tend to skip over the basics, thinking of them as banal and unimportant. However, as the saying goes, you always need to go back to basics to see where and how things can and are going. Therefore, some of my most enlightening conversations that I have now are not surrounding anything that's overwhelmingly complicated, dense, or intellectual. Rather, they're all surrounding things that are very accessible, rudimentary, and simple. This is a remarkable thing to witness happen in real time for me. No matter how elevated your sense of perception about yourself and the world, the same universal principles seem to always keep themselves intact. The most enlightening conversation that I've had in a very long time happened in August of last year. I had to run a lot of annoying errands after work, dragging myself all over Austin to make sure that I was keeping up on all the tasks I had to get ready for in my fourth quarter run. In addition, I had to make calls to a lot of people that I had failed to keep in contact with. This was coupled with the fact that Austin was in the middle of a multi-month heat wave with temperatures constantly hovering up at above 110 degrees, particularly on blacktop, which is around 120. These hours were constructed into one overwhelmingly positive or one overwhelming emotion, pure and abject misery, which, as I'm glad I'm stopping myself, is not a positive emotion. However, that misery was buffered by one of the calls that I had to make to a friend. This man, a person who has been a great friend to me for more than a year and a half, is a modern renaissance man. He's incredibly artistic. He's the best dancer I've ever seen in my life. He's on his way to creating his own alcohol company. He's an engineer. He's an incredibly kind person. He's currently writing a book, which in my opinion is going to be excellent. There are a lot of things that this man does that I marvel at. Anything I get to talk, anytime I get to talk to him, it's a privilege. When you're talking to a renaissance man, you learn something very quickly. Your conversations can and will go absolutely everywhere. You may have a specific reason for calling that person, whether it's to say hello or to talk about business. But that does not mean at all that the conversation will stay there. As someone who likes talking to people and does it partially for a living, this is a great joy that I hope to continue to foster. Good dialogue with a good person is an art, one that I'm blessed to be able to consistently partake in. About halfway into what turned out to be a 90-minute call, the, conversation of, the topic of conversation turned to the middle class. And if there's a topic that has been more brutally beaten to death with hollowed-out husks that we call our political leadership, it would be hard-pressed, I would be hard-pressed to find one. A lot of people talk about the middle class, whether they are conservative, liberal, a businessman, or a teacher. Everyone has an opinion, but every, everyone seems equally empty when it comes to solutions. We've got to bring back the middle class, they all say, usually to thunderous applause. The details about how this would happen under their proposals, however, remain ambiguous to this day. This has led me to ask this question numerous times. What is so important about the middle class in and of itself? Why do people give so much of a shit about it in their talking points, particularly when they're talk coming from political elites? 
Their actions certainly don't back up their words. We hear far more about the rich and the poor than we do about anyone floating in the, between the ends of those spectrums, like we mentioned earlier. As someone who grew up in a family that went from working to middle to upper middle class, this has been a very odd trend for me to witness. I've had nothing in common with the elites in our country nor the poverty-stricken, and when looked at honestly, hardly anyone else has either. This, to me, has always seemed very strange. When this topic was broached, my friend had an incredibly interesting perspective that shook me to my core. The point about why the middle class needed to, needed to be brought back in America was not for anything related to the economy. From a pure economic perspective, there is far more incentive to have very few rich people and a lot of poor people. You need a lot of rich people to create industry and agents within them, and you need a lot of poor people to act as their serfs. It worked in the feudal days, and it certainly works now. Well, at least for the time being. This analysis is also not meant to, deme or not meant to demean rich people or poor people either. In some ways, this is the natural way that the system must work. There needs to be a strata of people at every level of the economy. Contrary to what the Marxists and libertarians will tell you, there is no, quote, desirable number of where the distribution of wealth should go. In a healthy system of any kind, including an economy, there should be some level of balance, even though that balance itself isn't entirely equal. Things like competence, ingenuity, and merit all have and will matter. My friend, per usual, went a little deeper than the socially prescribed narrative. The middle class in a country certainly has economic importance, but there's more to it than that. Rather than a modest benefits package and a salary, the middle class serves a far more important function than filling jobs in middle management and non-CPA certified accounting professionals. The immense importance of the middle class, of the average and common man, is not one of economic importance. The importance of the middle class is to provide cultural cohesion and stability. The middle class, when looked at objectively, is a resting place for all the people who want to toe the line of average. There's no wonder, when you look at the numbers, why the vast majority of Americans fall into this category. It follows the path of any normal distribution, almost riding the statistical stereotype to perfection. The middle class, to most people, is not a symbol of monetary gain. Rather, it is a sign that they have a place in the world, somewhere to belong, somewhere where they can keep their dignity and respect intact. There's been much said in the past decade about the American dream, how it's cliché and dated and nostalgic and stupid, about how having a white picket fence, a little over two kids, and around $70,000 a year to your name makes to make your life as dorky and stereotypical. It's something you would see in a 50s television show or a 90s movie, not anything you would see now, people say. It's past its time, run its course, done its job. Better if we just move on. Better if we just forget. But is it? And should we? Many things about the American dream were and are very cliche and stereotypical. But I would argue that the American dream is and was like this for a reason. That reasoning was that no matter where you were, or where you come from, or what you did for a living, for the longest time it gave people something they could cling on to. Something that, due to things like the success masturbation hypothesis and success addiction, are losing in rapid fashion. Hope. The American dream was not a promise to the rich man or the poor man. It was a promise to the average man. That someone who works hard and whatever they choose to do can have a place in society. Whether you painted fences or ran a company of fence painters, there was a place for you in this country. There was community for you in this country. The American dream had to be formulaic because it had to be something that everyone, regardless of prior circumstance, could see themselves attaining. It gave everyone a hope and a possibility for attaining something, the average American life, that was hopelessly out of reach for almost everyone outside of America, particularly if they were from certain parts of the world that were not America. In achieving the American dream, a person would not, however, skyrocket up to the top of the societal hierarchy in America, like it would in almost every other place. Instead, it would place them someplace else, in the middle. It would allow everyone the opportunity for most things and give them stability among the average, common, and working classes to establish community with other people. This was not an easy life. In many ways, it was quite the opposite of one. However, in making these lines established, in creating the middle class, it made the day-to-day -day existence of an average life in America, in many ways, more fulfilling than it otherwise would have been. Henceforth, when this began to be taken away, when the middle class began to evaporate, when people started to be forced to choose the, to follow the route of the hyper-successful or the poverty-stricken, everything in American culture began to deteriorate. When you look at the average distribution of wealth in our society, and when it begins to rapidly bifurcate away from America's former power center, the middle class, everything that follows goes to shit. Our politics, our perceptions of capitalism, the nuclear family, belief in a religion, home prices. It's remarkable just how titanic of a shift this was. 
and the outrageously wide consequences it has wreaked on us since we so foolishly deplaced it from its rightful perch. So we must ask, what caused the decline of the middle class, which led to the demonization of average? The answer, well, everything that is not average. The blame for the death of the middle class and the demonization of average almost solely lies to their leaders, and, by extension, the swaths of people they enabled to leech off the average. As our leaders gradually and then suddenly abdicated their responsibilities in favor of economic stagnation and wealth creation that were completely debased from any and all value, American society started to fall off a cliff. As we began to expand influence and power around the world as an outgrowth from our entitlement program-dependent citizenry and selfish elites, that money naturally had to come from one place. It had one place to drain from. The middle class. It was the average and common people that lost out on things like globalization, foreign wars, and the inflation of our national debt. The middle class had the most money. So, therefore, they lost the most as our society bifurcated around a small group of elites and a large class of ever-getting-poorer people. The value of the common man in society is not anything economic. The value of the common man in society is defined by dignity and stability. These people, the average people, are the ones that hold societies together. They're the glue, the gel in the middle of the two extremes that keeps both from sliding away from one another and breaking into a thousand pieces. They do everything that these two cannot do, the work of the average, the work of the everyday person. When we lose sight of the value of the average, the men and women in the middle, play, we lose and are currently losing just about everything else. These people did the grunt work, shoveled the shit that neither our elites nor poor could ever muster up the strength to do. They upheld communities. They built culture. The middle class, defined by average people, encouraged people that working hard, keeping a job, bearing responsibility for people other than yourself, and going home to your family and local community was not only a good thing, but an admirable thing. It was a badge of honor, a bat signal to the rest of the world that you had importance and worth not by what you possessed, but by the service that you showed to everyone around you. However, as the middle class slowly and then rapidly disappeared, slowly did any respect for the common man, the average person in America, once the beacon for the rest of the world to follow, that light was effectively shut off as soon as the selfish nature of our leadership class and the shepherding of those they preyed on infected the middle class. Soon, the middle class was not put on a pedestal, but lampooned with the culture, infidels in a foreign land. They were called things like deplorables, who quote, clung to their gungs in religion. Companies that had once defined them, such as Anheuser-Busch and Gillette, started to actively begin campaigning against them. The very people they elected into office to represent them not only started to disrespect them, but to hate them. The demonization and demoralization of the middle class in America, one of the great sins of our modern time, did its job. Completely separated the perception of value from the reality of value. The average was, effectively, removed from our society, condemned to obscurity, all signs pointing it to stay away. However, now removed from the scenario, the damage already being done, we must ask, what really happens when the average gets removed from society? In his early appearances on Joe Rogan's podcast, Jordan Peterson saw and communicated many issues that he thought were troubling on college campuses. The first reason why he was in the news, a compelled speech law around gender pronouns, was one of the first. Additionally, he, like many on the scene, saw the early days of the woke hysteria and the resounding backlash as something that was ferocious and nearly insatiable. It would take a lot of effort to keep them at bay, he thought. And to his point, he was correct. We failed. That leviathan escaped the clutches of the university systems and found its way into the broader culture. The whirlwind that has since ensued has consumed our society in stupidity and tribalism for the past decade. Almost nothing constructive has come from it, save that, in my opinion, most of us are tired of it now. We want to move on to something better, more constructive, a vision of the future that we can all buy into. However, what this all sprung from, in Peterson's eyes, was the same trend we're seeing now with the success masturbation hypothesis and success culture generally. The thing that my generation is mostly defined by, the elephant in the room that no one wants to point out, is narcissism. To all honest brokers, this is an apparently obvious thing. Narcissism, entitlement, and all that springs from it, because of the factors that are both external and internal, defines almost everything that we do. Where Jordan Peterson saw this as most alarming was in the realm of large social change. The delusions of grandeur that he saw most college students attempt to partake in via, quote, changing the world were, to him, preposterous. You're 18, he claimed. How could you possibly know about climate change? About how to stop foreign wars? About how to balance a national budget? He was absolutely right about all this. 
While intelligence can be earned through discipline and hard work, life experience certainly cannot be. The biggest illusion that Peterson saw over and over again, the one that concerned him most of all, was the concern of, quote, inequality in society, particularly when it came from money and status, which therefore lectured its way up into all the other issues surrounding all the other things we're concerned about. First, he stated, most young people don't know the first thing about, quote, inequality, which is true. They just know the word, that the word sounds good, and what it will do should it be repeated over and over to the right crowd. They took nothing into consideration about what caused, quote, inequality. It was only that, quote, inequality existed and that it was bad. That was enough. That was all he needed to know. Interestingly enough, Peterson also stated the more they talked about inequality, the more unequal it seemed to make things. By calling out things in the world that had no possible way of fixing, by putting themselves in an elevated position of unearned moral virtue, they were themselves causing inequality. And this caused Peterson to ask another question. What happens to a society when an entire generation of the society thinks this way? The answer, as we know now, is that it completely goes to shit. Just like the dissolution of the middle class, the mental shift that has happened because of the demonization of average has been just as damaging. This has had an adverse effect primarily on young people. Young people, I have observed, have come to adopt one of two ways of seeing the world. The route of hyper-success or the route of abject failure. There is no middle ground, no compromise, no anything. The amount of pressure that young people have both, both put on themselves and have been placed on by others is overwhelming. The result is what you currently get with Gen Z. A lot of mental health issues, bad choices, and mass delusion. But Jordan Peterson also had an interesting twist to this idea. In a way, a lot of what he noticed the kids on campus saying was incredibly correct. He, like all smart people, understood the real impact of inequality. When the average gets removed from the fabric of society, the more unequal a society gets, both in terms of monetary and of status, the further we get away from society where everyone feels like they have a chance to win. This is, again, not an effect that's totally economic. It's too complicated to think that it's something that's something that all average comes down to. Money's an amplifier. It's nothing more of an indicator of something deeper, something that people really give a shit about and that consumes their life. The effect of average people in a culture and society is primarily attitudinal and cultural. It is a signal that says, no matter what you do, where you come from, who you are, or what you've done, if you play by a certain set of rules, you have a chance to be a part of something bigger than yourself. But now, this is no longer the case. With the average being removed from our culture, with all but two options of the outcome of your life being taken away, people are now forced to choose a lifestyle of personal success that is not theirs at all. They are being thrown into a corner at societal gunpoint and being made to pick something that they don't want to pick. Both options to most are terrible. Most people, as it turns out, do not want to have their values and the outcomes of those values forced on them. It's tyrannical, and it's wrong. Unfortunately, however, this is the game that most are being forced to play. So, we must ask ourselves, what does this mean for the broader culture, and for the narratives that we have to stomach about success? For most people, the average and common folks who are just going about living their lives, it means that they do not have a place in society anymore. Any part of the world that is a roving band of aimless people is not set up very well, whether that's refugees from a war-torn country or people that don't think they fit in at grade school. They start to become bitter, entitled, malevolent, and resentful. There is perhaps no worse point a society could reach where you remove the normality of the average person from being a viable option of living. When you back people into a corner and force them to take a plunge into extremism, it's remarkable at how quickly some of them jump on and take it. They either become a success monger or the opposite of one. However, we must consider a third option, which is slowly becoming a very loud chorus in our culture. The people who feel hopeless about either option. They don't want the lifestyle of a success monger, a person who dedicates their entire existence to being extraordinary at something. They see the work, the toil, the stress, the broken relationships, and all the rest, and want no part of it. But they hate the other option just as much. They don't want to be looked down by the elite, scorned and shamed for, quote, not working hard enough, or, quote, not putting in the 10,000 hours, or, quote, being a sheep. They just want to live, most likely a more peaceful existence than a success monger or an abject failure. This is something that should be encouraged, particularly given all the evidence that overwhelmingly states that average people are needed for a culture and a society to fu function and thrive. But it's not. In doing so, in shunning the average person from the light of having a place in a culture, we have removed the dignity from the average and common person. The reason that we've emasculated them, the reason why we've cut their dignity out from under them, is because we've completely removed and shut out any idea of the diversity of success. It's either their way or the highway. 
anything else, any deviation from the norm, is a cause for them to be mocked and ridiculed. There's a lot of conversation in our culture that is raging right now surrounding diversity. A lot of that conversation needs to happen. We do need to have discussions about what diversity looks like, and when it goes too far, and when people actually need to be lifted up. Much of the idiocy surrounding the diversity conversation is because people, to the people talking the loudest are the ones who are getting the conversation wrong in its entirety. Of course we should let ethnic and sexual minorities and women into the upper echelon should they prove worthy of it. We figured this problem out years ago. So then a question must be raised. What should diversity look like in terms of success? Where does that healthy balance need to be struck? This means, essentially, that we must respect other people's values, traditions, and what they choose for themselves. We cannot imperialize values onto others, make them think that how we think, and force them to do what we do. It's immoral, and it's wrong. Diversity of success means that, should this person be upstanding in terms of morality, take adequate levels of responsibility, and not infringe on anyone else's rights to pursue the same thing, any success outcome that a person wants should be desirable. If that person wants to be a teacher and not the managing partner at a financial services company, that should be fine. If the person wants to be a cop instead of an attorney in big law, that should be fine. If the person wants to try their hand at being a chef instead of an orthopedic surgeon, that should be fine. This is not a rocket science. This is a choice in a moral framework. It is a freedom, one that should be encouraged in the proper format. But it's not in ours. Average people with average levels of money and status are demonized for being who they are and doing what they do. They get fucked over first and most often. They are like the ones who everyone seems to take from and no one seems to help. Desire an average life and you condemn yourself to a life of outside intolerance and scrutiny, particularly if you're a young person. The poison that is the success masturbation hypothesis and success addiction negatively impacts everyone, whether that impact is felt directly or indirectly. The overwhelming takeaway is this. When the only two options for success in a society that are given is that you either become a top G or a loser, your success strategy sucks. Freedom, when in a morally constrained framework, should always be something that is desirable. The same is true in success as well in other areas of your life. If you cannot access those things, you are not free. If anyone holds those things back from you, you're being oppressed. You are not a free person. It's that simple. Life is a game that is defined by scarcity. The only thing that can create value in every scenario on the planet is when things are limited, whether that's engagement rings or in time slots at the hot works down the street. However, scarcity begins to sour when you naturally stir up resentment. It's the one thing that the principle can't survive. Once resentment is brought into the fold, once the value that comes from scarcity begins to be poisoned, bad things start to happen incredibly quickly. What this looks like in terms of success culture is the narrative we've been discussing this entire time. When only one thing, when only one version of success can seemingly be pursued, and to, do, and to get that, you must step on everyone to go get it, resentment begins to foster. People don't like when they seemingly don't have an essay in their own lives. People are selfish in the sense they want the thing that works for them. And, at the end of the day, we should all be okay with that. It's certainly better than the alternative, where everyone thinks they know better than the next person. That's far more insufferable. This trend of the demonization of the average in our society is especially horrifying because it destroys all alternative possibilities of passion, redemption, and success. The reasoning behind this is because you have to fit yourself into a certain box that you may or may not want to fit in. You cannot follow your passion because your true passion, given the numbers, may not be allowed in that framework. You cannot have a possibility of redemption because only a certain set of outcomes are celebrated. And finally, you cannot have a possibility of success because, more than likely, your version of success will not fit the cultural veneer that you've been suckered into believing. It's a terribly bad scenario for you, the world, and everyone in it. When the average gets removed from society, the number one quality that builds in every person is bitterness and a resentment towards the top of the power structure. People are not inspired by success in this scenario. Rather, they are envious of it, desiring more to tear it all down than to match the people that are on the top of the heap. They look for opportunities to destroy, rather than for opportunities to create. They look for things to tear down, rather than for things to build up. It's a hellish death loop of destruction, all because of a bullshit narrative spun by greedy and selfish elites. It does not help at all, as mentioned, that most of our elites are narcissistic and selfish. Not all of them are, but the ones who seemingly have more influence and prosperity than most certainly seem to fit the bill. However, we would be remiss if we did not admit something that I'm guilty of, and have been guilty of for a long time. We need some sort of elite. 
we must, for better or for worse, have some sort of ruling class in this regard. When people are focused on success not as an aspiration, but as a hedonistic and vitriolic goal, that's the moment where societies begin to unravel. The problem with our current ruling class and elites, powered by our experts and encouraged by our faux class, is that they are not really elite at anything. They're mostly entitled and spoiled, spoiled inheritors of a once great system that have done quite literally everything in their power to run it into the ground, to make everyone play in a game that is impossible to win. To solve the problem of success culture, we must graduate and level up our elites to match what is a better, more sustainable solution. In my estimation, that starts paradoxically with an encouragement of averageness in our society, not a diminishing of it. Average is something that we all, regardless of our money or status, learn to chase more. Like, a lot more. Because, in reality, we all need to understand just how little greatness exists, and how abundant and wonderful the averages of life truly are. I am fully in the camp of the great Martin Scorsese, even though I thought Killers of the Flower Moon was a very average but overall beautiful and excellent film, when I say that Marvel movies are not cinematic art. They're popcorn flicks, things you use in your free time to turn your brain off and turn your focus elsewhere so you can get away from the world. In that way, these movies have incredible utility and are valuable for a lot of people. They are what they are, and they're not trying to be something they're not, even though as, as of late, the hype around them has stalled quite dramatically. I've written about this particular scene a lot in this medium. Even though I never get tired of watching it, and yet it can be tiring to hear and see over and over again, I believe it has a lot to teach us about the way that we live. In the MCU, this is perhaps the most applicable scene to the living of life, to true art, that one can take from it. I have a feeling that if you ask Scorsese for his honest opinion, he would say that it would be this scene that he likes the most. At the end of Avengers Endgame, we finally begin to see a normalization in the Marvel Universe. Thanos has been defeated. Peace is restored across the universe. Most to all loose ends are tied up. The only thing left to do is put the Infinity Stones, the most powerful objects in the universe, back into their proper places. It is better to the characters of the film that they are left away from people who can abuse them. Some things are just too powerful to be trifled with. Having invented time travel through the quantum realm, a cheesy but necessary, I think, way to do this whole thing, but that's beside the point, some need to be taken back through their time machine in order to be placed so they don't interfere with the modern day. One of the people who volunteers to place a stone back into its original timeline is Steve Rogers, otherwise known as Captain America. Rogers, the leader of the Avengers, knows the scenario all too well, because for the longest time, his character is frozen in ice because of an Infinity Stone, stalling him until he was discovered nearly 80 years later and brought out to live in a world in which he didn't know nor understand. It was a struggle for Rogers to assimilate in the world in which he didn't belong. He never really fit in with anyone, even though he was a very normal person at his core. The world had changed too much. No one understood where he was coming from. Their morals and values didn't align with his. Even though he once was the most famous man in America and was on his way to doing so again, none of this is what Rogers desired. What Rogers did desire, and the one thing he was never allowed to have the moment he took the serum that made him have superhuman capabilities, is a normal life. He wanted to be average, to have the American dream that, in the time of World War II, was slowly becoming a reality. He wanted the quiet life, the white picket fence, the wife and a little more than two kids. He was so close to having it as he rounded out his time in World War II, but made the choice to give it up, give it up to save the country that he loved. So, when Roger saw an opportunity to go back and replace an Infinity Stone, he did so for two reasons. First, it was the right thing to do. The reason why Rogers remains my favorite character from the saga is that he, at the end of the day, is genuinely a good man. That was his appeal, and it worked. Second, the reason why he went back was because he saw an opportunity to claim something that was very rare, something that very few people have an opportunity to obtain. A second chance. Rogers, knowing that he had an opportunity to claim what he had always wanted, knew that he was going to be giving up many things. Rogers was, again, one of the most famous people in the world for nearly an entire century. He had saved the world numerous times. He was flooded with opportunities for monetary gain, further heroism, and most likely a career in politics. He could have had anything he wanted to do. He was America's poster boy, and every door that could possibly be opened, opened to him. But he chose to walk through none of them. Instead, he chose to go back and reunite with the woman he loved, Peggy Carter, and live a full life. They leave us sparse in the details, but when the present catches up, Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes, Roger's two best friends, confront him about how his life went. Rogers looks out on the lake they're sitting in front of, and simply says one sentence to describe his nearly 100 years of life. It was beautiful. The scenes never fails to be remarkable to me. 
Steve Rogers lived his entire life in the highest place on earth, just to realize that being average was much better than being the most famous man on the planet. It is the path that many, unfortunately, have had to take in order to realize that hyper-success, propelled by the success masturbation hypothesis, is not worth all the effort to get there. The effect of diminishing returns, particularly in terms of your values and overall feeling of your soul, is felt far and wide for decades afterwards. This trend is completely the opposite of where our culture was going, and is going. Instead, for example, we get posts on X from Andrew Tate about wanting a fourth baby mama, but only if she doesn't do OnlyFans. I like a lot of what Andrew Tate says, but this is completely and utterly nonsensical. It's ridiculous, and it's harmful to so many people who don't want to use kids as objects, but want to nurture those things, the common things, as things that should be optimized throughout life. It is in the common things where people have found the most value, and will always find the most value. Therefore, in order to defeat success culture, the top of the reign of the success masturbation hypothesis and halt the creation of more success addicts, we need to shift our optimization strategy towards the realm of the average and of the common. While we should encourage some hyper-success, if that hyper-success is beneficial to the rest of the world, there must be a space for the average in our culture to have a place, to know that they belong, and succeed on their own terms. However, in order to completely disrupt the cultural narrative that has been pushed for so long, people, particularly the young, need reasoning to go about doing something. Averageness and commonality have been so demonized for so long that there needs to be a restoration of status for those types of people. People respond to incentives, and there needs to be a clear articulation of those incentives for the restoration of the average and common man to have any effect at all. The first reason that I would provide as to why people should appreciate and chase, quote, average lifestyles a lot more is that you will have, be, have more chances to be happy than those who chase success. Happiness, another word that has been horribly redefined in our modern age, has been corrupted by the exact demographic of people that we all hoped wouldn't do so. Our success mongers and purveyors of success culture have hijacked a beautiful word and replaced it with one defined strictly by the success masturbation hypothesis, which is distorting actual happiness in favor of a new definition that hardly benefits anyone who follows it. However, we must think about this more in depth to realize just how powerful a reframing this concept of modern happiness can be and how being, quote, average can help restore it. Ponder this. If things that the average person in America had before our world was inverted made them happy, it will most likely make you more happy than you would likely be otherwise. With our modern world defined by mental health issues, mostly rising in depression and overall feelings of despair, this is worth a further examination. Further, we must look at two things, what we have gained and what we have lost that could have potentially contributed to our lack of happiness. What have we lost? A sense of community, successful marriages, children in two-parent homes, a lack of intense media and clout chasing, and an overall sense of the existential. What have we gained? The opportunities for immense and instant wealth, opportunities to expand our narcissism via social media, and access to an endless stream of identities that we try on and wear like a set of clothes off the rack. Let's ask ourselves an honest question here. Which one of these scenarios, both by the data and in description, is better? In my, maybe not, opinion, what we have lost, the things that have defined the average, is far more important than what we have gained, the things that have defined the new elite and the impoverished. There are certain things that we have to accept are just better than others. The things that have defined the average on every possible metric are far better than the things that define the non-average. Additionally, when more things are average, the more access you will have to them by definition. When things are average, that means, as we saw in our foray into the importance of the middle class, more people have a chance to attain them. It's an incredible thing to realize that some of the best things in life, few of the only things in life that matter, are far more accessible than you think. All that you need to do is buy into the happiness recipe and you'll be set. When this is done, you will be given and have earned a better chance to reach contentment and well-roundedness across a variety of domains that you encounter and enter. Following and because of this, you'll be surrounded by other people who are happy. When you put yourselves in the right rooms and the right spaces, you will naturally be around people who value the same things in life. This is a universal concept, something that will always be true no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. If you're miserable, you'll attract misery. If you're happy, you'll attract happiness. People have a natural way of gravitating to one another, no matter what the situation may be. When you're constantly struggling with people who have been taken captive by the success masturbation hypothesis and have succumbed to success addiction, you will naturally be around people who are more, more than likely not satisfied and not happy. You'll be around people who, no matter how much they accrue and how much they eventually come to possess, will never have enough to allow them to reach contentment. The very thought of average to them is unthinkable in any but domain of their life. 
Therefore, you must also realize that this place is perhaps the hardest to reach in our modern culture simply because of the societal pressure that is put on people to conform to its opposite. It is incredibly hard to be average, and even harder to be okay with the thought of average. However, if you can see past the lies of the SMH and the success mongers in our culture, and begin to rediscover where true and highly available value lies, you have a chance to see average for what it truly is, not as an inhibitor to success, but as the gateway to it. Finally, and most importantly, chasing the average things in life, the things that are not defined by worldly status and wealth, give you a unique opportunity to do something incredibly unselfish. Duplicate that happiness onto the next generation. Children, the only things that matter when talking about the future, catch more things through observation that are actively taught things through teaching. They learn by watching and imitating, particularly in the household. So, the best way to teach children about what really matters is to embody what really matters. This is part of the reason why, in my estimation, the millennials are so screwed up as a generation. Being raised by boomers, an inherently entitled and selfish generation, they themselves have become entitled and selfish, and have reaped the bad advice that has gone along with that. Gen Z, to use another example, my generation, being raised by Gen X, has gone either one of two ways. The way of the hyper-soft, or the way of the hyper-strong. Ergo, the way of success culture, or the way of the impoverished. The way of the pushed, or the way of the coddled. Children learn to do what their par- from their par- learn from their- what their parents do, particularly when it involves making them happy. The flourishing of other humans does not get young or old. It is the universal thing that we all feel. One of the biggest gifts my parents gave me was that, even though they never had a lot of money, they always had time for things that mattered. They never missed sporting events, or almost never did. I can't recall a time where my dad needed to travel, or where my dad needed to travel where we didn't have family dinners together every single night. Every weekend, we went over to a family member's house for something, whether it was to help with yard work or go for a cookout. They didn't have a lot of time, but they had a lot inside of them. Or they didn't have a lot of money, but they had a lot inside of them, which is the thing that matters more. Far more. My parents did something that I aspired to do every single day. Embody success on their terms. In my hometown, there were a lot of opportunities to sell out. There were a lot of opportunities to make someone else's version of success their own success, to succumb to the insecurity through their actions of other people, to keep up with the Joneses. But my parents never made that trade. They kept their integrity, their values, and did not let anyone else imperialize them from afar. Their example was incredible, and will remain their greatest gift they've ever bestowed upon me for the rest of my life. Valuing success on your own terms is the only way we can defeat success culture. In a world where words don't mean anything anymore, we need to start bringing back value underneath them so that they can do so. If we don't, we have no chance at avoiding the hopeless bifurcation that is splitting our culture into two. But if we do, we have the option to create something beautiful, lasting, and true, which is always, and will forever be, the best option. Success, like all things in society, must have morally ordered freedom attached to it. The current predicament with success in our culture is we do not have a definition for it, This has caused success to bifurcate, and our culture to bifurcate with it. This has led to innumerable bad ideas and far more failures than successes within the current system of operations. To right the ship, success must be chosen for each individual person, starting with elevating averageness back to its prior place, a place of value, stability, and worth. Only then will success be something to be valued in our society once again. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed and gotten as much value from the series as I have. There will be more of these conversations to come. It's a topic that's not going away, and I'm going to continue to drive it home as much as possible, because I truly believe this is what matters to me the most in helping people get better and become better people. So let's continue to drive it in the right direction. Thanks for listening as always, guys. New episode, new guest on Wednesday. Open your mind, own the day. Have a great start to your week.